Many of us still vividly remember the day in May 2003 when then-President George W. Bush stood in front of a giant mission-accomplished banner aboard a U.S. naval warship and declared an end to combat operations in Iraq. It was a scene that would haunt the Bush presidency for years as a violent insurgency raged on in that country, resulting in the deaths of thousands of American soldiers. But as Washington Post reporter Craig Whitlock writes in his new book, The Afghanistan Papers, there was another eerily similar event that took place that same day that has almost been completely forgotten. Donald Rumsfeld, Bush's Secretary of Defense, flew to Kabul where he declared combat operations were over in Afghanistan as well, and the country was, he said, now secure. As Whitlock reminds us, it was merely one of scores of misleading public statements, half-truths, and outright falsehoods delivered by four administrations about America's longest war. Now, with the last U.S. military flight departed from Afghanistan and the Taliban celebrating their victory, we'll talk to Whitlock on how and why the U.S. government and the U.S. military concealed the hard truths from the American public on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, a historic day. The United States has left Afghanistan. The war, our war, our involvement in that war, 20 years long, is now over. And uh, the political fallout begins. What will happen now? How much of uh, the messy and chaotic end will be blamed on President Biden as opposed to his predecessors? And of course, you know, what is going to happen on the ground in Afghanistan? I do have to say, with all the statements today, obviously an extraordinary effort by the U.S. military to get, you know, what was it, 120,000 people out of that country, massive airlift. But as uh, General McKenzie, the commander of, uh, of Central Command, said in his briefing today, we did not get out everyone we wanted to get out. Secretary Blinken just said it's a number less than 200. We're talking American citizens still in Afghanistan, less than 200, closer to 100. Not a lot, but Biden did say they were going to get everybody out, and clearly he hasn't. It's a strange end to the war. You said it's a, a historic day, and it is. It, it does represent the end of our 20-year adventure or misadventure in Afghanistan. But I've got to say, basically, we all learned about the end of the war uh, with a Zoom call from uh, General um, Kenneth McKenzie, the head of CENTCOM, calling in, not from Afghanistan, but I guess he was in, in uh, Doha or wherever Central Command is. And then we heard, as you mentioned, from Tony Blinken. We have not heard from President Biden yet. I guess we will. Uh, maybe, He's um, speaking Tuesday afternoon. May, maybe yes. on tomorrow on Tuesday afternoon. But the other thing that General McKenzie said, you, you, you were the questions that you were posing is 
what will happen in the long term, both in terms of the historical legacy of the people involved in this, but also what will happen on the ground. Will Afghanistan become a breeding ground for terrorists again? But the other thing that General McKenzie said that was sobering was he said that there are 2,000 hardened ISIS-K fighters uh, on the ground there, who many of whom were released after the Taliban took over, either intentionally by the Taliban or through the sort of chaos that sometimes ensues in situations like this. Now, he said that the Taliban was going to have their hands full uh, with these ISIS uh, fighters, but it does raise the question of whether we're going to have problems with them as well. And don't forget, I mean, there are anywhere from 100 to 200 American citizens um, on the ground in Afghanistan, according to Blinken. And there is the possibility of uh, Americans being taken hostage. That would be a nightmare scenario after a number of nightmare scenarios. And, and that just want to make one very quick point before Victoria weighs in. You know, the release of those ISIS prisoners, which I think the military just uh, Kirby just acknowledged a few days ago for the first time, and now uh, McKenzie has uh, given a little more substance to it, is exactly what happened in Iraq after we left Iraq. Remember, all the prisons were emptied, ISIS fighters uh, poured out, and that's what fueled... Wasn't, wasn't Ab that, um, uh, Abu al-Baghdadi the head of ISIS? Yeah. Uh, wasn't and he released he, was, he had been in prison. prison and was released, <laughs> yeah, right. Great. So that, that is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted those comments by McKenzie because they really leapt out at me. 2,000 hardcore ISIS fighters, many of them released from prison in just the last couple of weeks. So one of the things that really struck me, though, was uh, about Blinken's speech, which was the way the Taliban as a operating government in Afghanistan was sort of normalized. It's already kind of the fact on the ground that the Taliban is the government and, and the way Blinken has already begun attempting to sort of kind of work the various levers that you can work against a, a hostile or semi-hostile or we don't quite know foreign government. It was almost like a Welcome to the community, the international community of nations, Taliban. Well, you know, it's interesting that you should say that, Victoria, and I agree with you. And I think that what you just said is going to play into the conversation we're about to have with Craig Whitlock, you know, the author of this, uh, of the Afghanistan Papers. And some of the mistakes uh, that we made over the course of the last 20 years in not engaging the Taliban when maybe we should have tried harder and conflating the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And I think maybe that is a lesson that the Biden administration um, has learned. It also, they say necessity is the mother in, of invention. Necessity may also be the mother of diplomacy in this case. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Now, Blinken was very careful to say that, you know, whatever we do with the Taliban will not be on the basis of trust or faith. Any legitimacy or any support that they get is going to have to be earned, and people are going to be watching that very, very closely. Look, uh, we will see about the Taliban, you know, when you see the Taliban 
commander who's like been in charge of Kabul security in the last couple of weeks. And it's a member of the Haqqani network. It's a Haqqani, which is, you know, a vicious criminal gang that's been closely allied with both al-Qaeda and the Taliban. I think this idea that, um, you know, we could have dealt more, you know, with the Taliban, we could have recognized them earlier and they would have come around and been a uh, government we could have worked with. I'm a little skeptical of that. But look, time is going, you know, we are going to see in the next days, weeks, months, are there going to be massive reprisals? Is there going to be a bloodbath of uh, Afghans who work with us? Or, you know, are they actually going to show that this new moderate language they're using is going to be real? We don't know. That's the big question. The other big question, of course, is, you know, does al-Qaeda return? Do other terrorist groups return and use Afghanistan as a stage for attacking us? But all that said, uh, you know, there is our own sorry history of 20 years in that country. And that's what Craig Whitlock has uh, outlined so brilliantly in this book, The Afghanistan Papers, all the series of falsehoods and misstatements about the progress we were making in Afghanistan by White House after White House after White House and by military commander after military commander. It is a pretty shocking story. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Craig Whitlock, Washington Post reporter and the author of The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Craig, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So a really groundbreaking book, which has been compared by many to the uh, Pentagon Papers as sort of the unwritten history of the mess in Afghanistan and a lot to talk about here, but let's start out with August 31, Tuesday is the day the United States will pull out of Afghanistan once and for all. As you have watched the events of the last few weeks unfold and all the chaos at the airport and the uh, ISIS-K strike and the retaliation for it, Give us your take on whether this could have been avoided. Was there a better way to do what Biden wanted to do? Well, of course, in retrospect, there was. There has to have been, right? And they didn't expect that the Taliban would sweep through the country as quickly as it did. Uh, you know, I mean, but I was shocked by that, too. I knew the Afghan army and Afghan police forces were weak and probably it was just a matter of time till they would lose the fight to the Taliban. But the fact that all those provincial capitals were taken by the Taliban in, in the space of 10 days or less, I mean, that was pretty shocking. Uh, I don't have the advantages of intelligence reports like the Biden administration does, but you know, clearly they should have seen that coming, or at least, as you know, Mike, I mean, the Pentagon has contingency plans for everything. We have contingency plans on the shelf for invading Canada, so it's hard to understand why they didn't have you know, better contingency plans to evacuate the embassy, to evacuate American citizens, and as well as Afghans who had helped the United States in the war over the years. I think 
they were clearly walking a fine line. They were worried about triggering some kind of panic if they started bringing people out. But in retrospect, you know, they just got that wrong. Let me follow up on that, Craig, and all of the work you did, all of the many thousands of documents and interviews uh, that you were able to look at and bring to the attention of the American people now in this book and previously in in your uh, series in the Washington Post. I'm just wondering if there's anything in there that can help us understand what to me remains one of the big mysteries um, of the past uh, few weeks here, which is how is it that we were in that country for 20 years, that we built this military, that we had 750,000 American service members there, you know, hundreds of commanders over that period of time, and did not have any idea that the military, the Afghan military, would just collapse, would just would just evaporate in a matter of, seemingly in a matter of days or, or, or just a few weeks. Is there anything that you gleaned from all of those reports and interviews and memos from Rumsfeld and others that would help explain that? Yeah, so actually there's one quote that sticks in my mind very clearly. It was an interview with uh, Lieutenant General Doug Lute, who was the war czar, so they called him, working at the White House under Bush and Obama. He was overseeing strategy and policy for the war in Afghanistan under the two administrations. And he was very blunt. In this interview he gave to the Inspector General, which we obtained for the Afghanistan papers, he said, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan we didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. And you hear that again and again, people saying, we just didn't understand Afghanistan. We never figured it out. And of course, this is the irony, right? We were there for 20 years and we still never understood the place. And there's some of that's practical in the sense that we we cycled troops and diplomats in for a few months, maybe a year at a time on their rotations. And then you bring in a new crew and sometimes you'd have the same people going back, but really we were, re- each new crew we sent over there, whether it's troops or diplomats or aid workers, are relearning Afghanistan. And we had hardly any people who learned the languages, who spent you know, more than a year there. And so you know, we were sort of condemned to re- keep re- committing the same mistakes. And that goes for the Afghan army and police. I mean, I think it isn't that we didn't know that the Afghan army and police forces were corrupt or incompetent. There's certainly tons of evidence of this, which we document in the book with oral histories and other documents that show that despite what US leaders were saying in public, that the Afghan forces were capable of of defending their own country, that uh, US military trainers and people internally just didn't have any faith in them. But one thing we really got wrong was the idea that they could collapse so quickly. Part of that is the Afghan way of war, as one person put it. There was a a U.S. diplomat named Todd Greentree was talking about the Afghan way of war that, you know, they're used to switching sides, right? They see who's winning and they'll flip very quickly because, you know, this is a country that has had invaders and civil wars for for generations. And they're very good at sussing out who's going to win and nobody wants to get stuck on the losing side. And it's accepted that you switch sides. So I think what we saw this month was a lot of Afghan commanders and provincial government officials putting their finger to the wind. And it was pretty clear that the Taliban had all the momentum, had all the strength. The Americans were leaving. 
uh, the Ghani's government's corrupt. So they're like, we want to we want to be on the winning side. We're not going to fight for a losing cause. So rather than fight to the death, they flipped. Just one quick follow up on that, because you mentioned that line, the Afghan way of war, which I believe also came up in another context, uh, which is that when we very quickly, even sooner than I think we expected to, defeated the Taliban, they were seemingly willing to make a deal um, and enter into some kind of a peace agreement. And our attitude and Don Rumsfeld's attitude at the time was, you know, we're the winners, they're the losers, um, and, you know, we're just not going to do that. But am I right that that was also... uh, I think some of the some of the same person may have pointed out that uh, that that was a fundamental mistake in in understanding the Afghan way of war. That that's right. And there was an Algerian diplomat, Lakdar Brahimi, who was leading in November and December two thousand one this attempt to have a conference in Bonn, Germany. They called it the Bonn Conference to essentially come up with a new government for Afghanistan once the Taliban had been thrown out of power. And in retrospect, he called it the original sin, the idea that they could exclude the Taliban from reconciliation talks. But at the time, you know, you know, I don't want to say this was easy to understand in retrospect, but, you know, the Bush administration thought it had vanquished the Taliban. They thought they had defeated them militarily and they couldn't come back. And I think what they did, the mistake they made is they put the Taliban, they lumped them in the same basket is al-Qaeda. They were all terrorists, right? And we weren't going to negotiate with terrorists, is what Rumsfeld and Bush and Dick Cheney said. But, you know, there is a big distinction between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was a group of foreign fighters, limited in size, that had used Afghanistan as a base for operations. But uh, there weren't that many of them. And pretty quickly after the invasion of Afghanistan, they were fled, captured, or killed. But, you know, you can't vanquish the Taliban. They are part of the fabric of Afghan society, and they're they're brutal and they're medieval and a lot of their beliefs. But you know the idea that we would eliminate them just just showed a, a lack of understanding of Afghanistan. And it wasn't just in 2001. There were other points along the way where there, when we had the most leverage or the Afghan government had the most leverage, that we overlooked opportunities or you know dismissed them to negotiate. Another one came in. 2004, when Hamid Karzai was elected president, this was sort of seen as the high point of the war. It looked like democracy was working. The Taliban had tried to disrupt the elections and failed. That was sort of a high point where, in retrospect, if we had negotiated with the Taliban and said, okay, you guys lost, now let's bring you into the political system, that would have really turned things around. And, and But again, we thought we had vanquished them, so why let them back in? So I'm thinking ahead to tomorrow when theoretically, at least, America draws a line under its engagement in Afghanistan. And yet the kind of the pathologies of America's security state seem to be playing out once again uh, during the course of this withdrawal. The kind of the self-delusion, the lying, the mission creep that characterized so much of our 20 year engagement. Do you think it's possible that we will really be able to draw a line under our engagement in Afghanistan starting tomorrow? Can we turn the page on September 1st? Well, it depends what you mean by engagement. I think we're going to continue to be engaged in Afghanistan. We just, we won't have thousands of troops on the ground. But, you know, as we've seen in recent days with these airstrikes on, by drones on, you know, alleged Islamic state targets, I mean, those are military operations being conducted from the Gulf, from the Persian Gulf, not from 
forces in Afghanistan. And I, you know, and who knows, Lord knows what the CIA is going to be up to, but we're still going to be involved in Afghanistan. It's just from a distance and not as many, you know, not forces on the ground. And of course, we're going to be engaged diplomatically. And, you know, the big question, setting aside military operations and counterterrorism is aid to the Afghans. I mean, this, this country's economy is already very fragile, but was propped up by the United States and other donors. If we pull the plug on all that money, uh, I mean, Afghanistan's going to, you know, the economy is going to collapse. It's, there's going to be tons of refugees and, and you know, real problems with hunger. You know, we're going to have to deal with the Taliban one way or another. Uh, so we're going to remain engaged. It's just going to be, the question is, is it going to be fundamentally different, the nature of the relationship? Are we going to accept the Taliban as the winners? Or are we going to, you know, are we just going to focus on counterterrorism operations, which is really what we've been doing for a long time to no great effect, or you know, what's the nature of the strategy gonna be? And I certainly haven't heard the Biden administration articulate what it, how it expects to deal with Afghanistan in the months and years to come. We all saw Jake Sullivan on uh, TV over the weekend talking about all the leverage we have over the Taliban, presumably that's the economic leverage. But you know, while listening to that, I'm thinking, well, if we had so much leverage, how come we couldn't get them to let us get everybody we need if we want to get out, who wants to get out, out? How come we couldn't, you know, open up the, the roads to the airport? Um, how come we, you know, the Taliban was not cooperating on a whole host of matters that has made this such a messy, chaotic uh, exit? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Mike. I mean, we have some leverage. We have things the Taliban wants, no question. Uh, they would love for but us to We didn't to use that leverage to, to get all of, because we're not going to get everybody out, right? That's right. We're not going to get everything they want. But, you know, the Taliban's also shown, though, that, you know, they can handle isolation, right? I mean, they went through this in the late 90s when they were only recognized by three other countries, the Saudis, the UAE, and Pakistan. You know, I think they know how to play this long game. Right now, they feel very triumphant. I mean, they've kicked out the superpower, and this is, you know, after they already kicked out the Russians. So they're feeling pretty good about their ability to defend their country and, and run things the way they want. But, you know, to me, it's just going to be fascinating to see how this relationship unfolds with the Taliban, between the Taliban and the Biden administration, you know, how much of it is going to be overt, how much of it's going to be covert. You know, one thing that was reported on but didn't get that much attention was the CIA director's visit to Kabul several days ago, where he, you know, where Bill Burns, the CIA director, met with Mullah Baradar, the Taliban deputy head. I mean, that to me was pretty striking, right? This is after the Taliban swept through the country, and already we're saying the CIA director for a face-to-face -face meeting. Yeah. That means they want to do business, right? I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was astonishing. Re really interesting. And, you know, and Bill Burns, who, of course, wrote a memoir called Back Channel, has a long history of playing those back channel diplomatic roles. Do you think that suggests that the Biden administration is figuring out a strategy that is going to look very different from what we've seen in the past? And they uh, are, are seriously trying to engage the Taliban and trying to nudge them in a direction that will that will be consistent with our interests and the interests as we see it of Afghanistan? Yeah, I would think. I mean, just the fact that the CIA director is going in there and that they 
you know, almost publicly acknowledged this, right? I mean, it wasn't a public announcement, but they didn't dispute these reports. It leaked out pretty quickly. And I, I don't think it was leaking from the Taliban. I think it was from our side, the fact that Burns was there. But, you know, the, you, you have the evacuation they're dealing with, although I think the Taliban really communicates directly with U.S. military about that. But with Burns going in, the way I read that, maybe I'm wrong, is that, you know, the CIA wants to know, can we work with the Taliban against Islamic State, against ISIS-K, as they call it. Uh, you know, the Taliban has been fighting the ISIS factions in Afghanistan for a while. Uh, the United States is, is worried about that group, uh, more so than the Taliban, in terms of threats to U.S. targets in the United States or elsewhere in the world. So, I mean, you know, there's a common interest right there. And with the U.S. having to remove military forces from Afghanistan, you know, why wouldn't they be talking with the Taliban about other ways to carry out counterterrorism operations against Islamic State? Uh, I want to just get in sort of back up for a second here and go to the beginning of the story and how we got into this 20 year project. Obviously, September 11th was uh, was the catalyst. But as you lay out in the book and is uh, very clear in, in all of these papers, when the Bush administration went in, they were very vocal about how this was not going, we were not going to be engaging in nation building. And Rumsfeld himself was, you know, scornful of the idea of nation building. And, you know, he was emphasizing the light footprint. And yet, over time, you know, it just kind of seemed to have evolved that way. And I don't, doesn't seem like there was a certain point where a switch was flipped and the Bush administration or future administration said, okay, now we're going to nation build. It just seems like it just kind of happened. But before you answer it, you know, one kind of eye-popping statistic that you have in the, in the book is the amount of money we ultimately spent there. And you say that the United States has allocated more than $133 billion to build up Afghanistan more than it spent adjusted for inflation to revive the whole of Western Europe with the Marshall Plan after World War II. Right. That puts it in good context, doesn't it? And I think we got a lot more out of the Marshall Plan than we than we did out of our nation building exercise in Afghanistan. Now, to be fair, a, a lot of that money, the $133 billion, went to trying to build up the Afghan security forces, which... Well, that didn't course, go very well either. <laughs> you know, which, which went up in smoke. But, um, but you're right. So Bush... And this is the whole problem that Bush had already backed himself into a corner at the start of the war, because when he campaigned against Al Gore in 2000, he was just dismissive of this idea of using the military for nation building exercises. And he was criticizing the Clinton administration for doing it in the Balkans and Somalia and Haiti. And he, you know, so when he was running for president, he said, I'm not going to do that. Now, of course, he had no idea he was going to get involved in this war in Afghanistan. And lo and behold, within a few months after we invaded and started bombing Afghanistan, you know, the Taliban's gone, Al-Qaeda's largely gone from, from Afghanistan at that point. And so now you have this country that's just, you know, demolished country. It was a wreck. Uh, you know, there are descriptions of Kabul being like Berlin in 1945. There were serious concerns about a famine. There were millions of refugees, no electricity, no running water, you know, you can't just abandon it, right? You have a moral obligation to try and help. But yet Bush had promised, even when we went to war, he said, we'll let the UN, the United Nations deal with the nation building. We're just gonna do the military ops. 
So how do you pivot, right? So he and Rumsfeld were reluctant to do it, but at the same time, in April of 2002, Bush gives a speech at the Virginia Military Institute where he's sort of trying to soften this idea where he says, well, Afghanistan needs our help. We can't leave the people in the lurch. We have an obligation to do what we can to help out. But of course, he doesn't use the, the phrase nation building. But in, in the documents we obtained for the Afghanistan papers, one thing becomes clear is people who were involved in the war then said that those early years were the critical moments when Afghanistan needed the most help. And if we'd done more early on, we could have we would have had the best hope for stabilizing the country. But Bush was still very reluctant to spend money there. And of course, he was already focusing on Iraq. So at the moment when the nation building would have done the most good, we didn't do very much. And then when Obama comes in, he also promises we're not going to do nation building in Afghanistan, right? This was even more of a, a whopper. He gives a speech at West Point in 2009, said, the nation I'm most interested in is building is our own. We're not going to do it in Afghanistan. And yet he spends far more than Bush ever did in Afghanistan, again, to little effect. So there's this, this complete contradiction between what they're promising voters in public and what they end up really doing on the ground. So fast forward to today, and your book concludes with what seems to be a sort of a, like a positive assessment of Biden's willingness to kind of look the truth in the eye. You say, unlike his predecessors, Biden gave a sobering assessment of two decades of war. He did not try to frame the outcome as a victory. Now, you wrote that before what's happened over the course of the last 10 days or last two weeks. Right. That was written in April. But but go ahead. That's right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious whether or not your assessment of uh, Biden's kind of cl- clear-sightedness or, or his, call it, you know, somewhat kind of brutal assessment of the facts on the ground in Afghanistan has changed? Well, so no, I think Biden was correct in his assessment then in May, in April of this year when he announced that he's going to withdraw all U.S. troops. And at that point, he said by September 11th, and they later moved up the date. But he said, look, we're not accomplishing anything. We should have left after we got bin Laden. And he's the first president since the war began to say, we can't win this. Right. Every other president said, we're going to win, we're going to prevail. You know, Bush, Obama, even Trump. I mean, I I get it. Trump, he says all sorts of stuff. But even in his administration, he's promising victory. We're going to win. You know, that it's going to be a a military victory by defeating the Taliban. All these presidents say this. And Biden's the first one to come in and say, look, this was a mistake. What we were trying to accomplish in recent years, the Afghan government's corrupt you know, there's no reason for us to stay there. You know, we've done everything we can. Now, you can certainly criticize and argue with the way he tried to pull out, which has been a mess, no question. But the all his predecessors, you know, said in public we were going to win when, you know, they probably knew we couldn't. I mean, look at Obama. He promised to end the war, too. Uh, he promised to pull out troops by the end of his second term. That didn't happen. Trump promised to end the war, too, by pulling out troops. That didn't happen. So I think Biden's predecessors kind of got cold feet. They were worried that the Afghan government would collapse, so they dragged things out. Biden finally pulled the plug, and it's gotten really ugly, but he's the first president to be willing to pull the plug. 
So let's talk a little about how this book came about, because the spine are these um, lessons learned interviews that were done by the special inspector general for Afghanistan, John Sopko's office. And, you know, we look at inspectors general as uh, truth tellers, people who want to sort of expose and shed light on what goes wrong in government. And yet, they fought you when you tried to get hold of these interviews and you had to go to court to get them, which I find fascinating. And, you know, uh, somebody who's You're known John Sopko for many years, a little surprising that he fought you as hard as it did as he did. Tell, uh, tell us a little bit about about that, about your efforts to get these interviews and uh, what you had to do to finally uh, get the government to produce them. Yeah, so there's a lot of irony and frustration there. So in, in the summer of 2016, I'd just gotten a tip that the inspector general was interviewing people for some program they called Lessons Learned. Uh, and in particular, the tip I got was they had a long interview with General Michael Flynn, who, of course, was had just retired as an army general military intelligence and was becoming notorious for campaigning for Trump and against Hillary Clinton. And, you know, but... Flynn had been in charge of NATO and U.S. intelligence in, in Afghanistan uh, years earlier, and it was known as to be pretty blunt. So I was really interested to see what he said in this interview. As I heard, it was an unclassified interview. And you know how that works, Mike. If it's unclassified, uh, then it's arguably public information. And the inspector general's office, at first when I asked, I said, well, I'd like a copy of that. They confirmed that Flynn had been interviewed. And they said, sure, just send us a you know, just to make it formal, send us a Freedom Information Act request, and we'll 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 get on it, and we'll we'll release it in a couple of weeks. Well, they ended up sitting on it and sitting on it, and then sure enough, Trump wins, and Flynn's going to be his national security advisor. So then the Inspector General finally denies the request, says we're not going to give it to you, no good reason. They just didn't want to cough it up. And at that point, I so we sued for it under FOIA in federal court. And at that point, we'd also heard that they had done hundreds of other interviews with other people involved in the war under Bush and Obama. So then I start to thinking, well, I really want to know what these people said, right? You know, at that point, we thought the war was winding down. We thought, you know, Obama almost ended it, but not quite. And Trump said he was going to end it. But I was really interested to do a project looking back at what mistakes were made. Well, long story short, we had to sue the inspector general twice in federal court, and they slow rolled it as long as they could. What was their argument for not producing it, especially if it was not classified material? Well, there was no good argument. What they would say in court was that these were confidential interviews, that they promised anonymity to these people uh, who they interviewed. But in fact, as we showed in court, a lot of them hadn't been promised anonymity. They, they were interviewed on the record and that the inspector general would then put out public reports called lessons learned reports, which would occasionally quote some of these people, but they, they omitted all the good stuff, right? All the really harsh internal criticism and confessions about what had, go, what had gone wrong, uh, they, they watered it all down. And Why? Why? Well, you know, you tell me, I don't know, but I think, frankly, they, they realize this is too big a can of worms that they didn't want to, it was, it was too hot for them. They're a federal agency, and for them to 
quote all these people saying what a terrible job their strategy was and the, you know, the truth was hidden from the American people, I think they were just worried nobody would ever talk to them again and they would alienate all these other federal agencies like the Pentagon and State Department and they got, they got cold feet. Is this an inspector general who is a creation of uh, reports to both the executive branch and Congress? Is no, there- just Congress. And, and the irony here is the inspector general, John Sopko, he's, he's known as a bit of a media hound, right? You go into their offices in Arlington and they have giant framed copies of him, uh, articles about him and different papers or on TV. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, he likes being interviewed. He likes the publicity, but on this the most important work that they probably did, they didn't want to make it public. And we're still in court today trying to get more documents from them five years later. The reason I asked, uh, I mean, if he reports to, to Congress, it d- does suggest not just that, but just more generally, that this is also oversight. a giant failure of congressional oversight as well, right? Um, I mean, it doesn't seem like Congress really held uh, the executive branch's feet to the fire on the Af- Afghan war. And, uh, you know, back in, in during the Vietnam era, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you had the Fulbright hearings, um, you know, which did years of investigations um, into into the Vietnam War. So so where was Congress in all of this? Well, they were complicit. They weren't doing their job. I mean, that's something we point out in the book, as you point out with the Fulbright hearings during Vietnam, there was no public accounting. There was no holding the, the military or the State Department's feet to the fire. I mean, you would, the Senate and House would have hearings every once in a while, but by and large, in, particularly in recent years, uh, they let things go without much scrutiny. Now, you have to remember, both parties were involved in promoting, you know, that were endorsing our war strategy under Bush and Obama and Trump. So I think there's some real reluctance in Congress to go back and and have a bipartisan public accounting of what went wrong. And Congress yes. didn't do their job in this. And let's also remember that, you know, le- like less than 1% of the American public actually, you know, serves served in, in, in this war or any other, any of the other uh, more recent wars. Um, and so it is, I guess, in some ways also a collective failure of the American people for not putting the kind of pressure on Congress that maybe maybe we should have because well, we didn't that, have the same true. skin in the game. But, you know, Dan, I'd like to that that brings up a good point. You know, the public was tuned out of Afghanistan in recent years. But I think one reason for that is there was a deliberate attempt, particularly under Obama and Trump, to minimize the war. That they fair, didn't fair want enough. people to know what was going on. They made it really difficult for journalists to embed with military units or even to get interviews with military commanders. Uh, So they deliberately made it difficult for the war to get any public visibility. And this was true up really just till recent weeks. So, of course, the public tunes it out, right? The government doesn't want anybody to think there's a war going on. You know, I was just going to add by the same token, you know, let's 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 actually in addition to kind of congressional investigation, it's pretty clear that, the you know, with you possibly accepted that the amount of media attention that was paid to the war in Afghanistan had been significantly declining over the course of the last decade. The media kind of tuned out to the war as well. Yes and no. I mean, I think you're right. If you, if you did a study, particularly on television and the amount of coverage, uh, at the same time, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind people that, you know, a number of news organizations had bureaus in Kabul all along with 
people risking their lives to tell these stories, whether it was the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, the Wall Street Journal, Associated Press and Reuters. I mean, the war was being covered and often at great expense and at risk to correspondence. You know, maybe it didn't get on television quite as much, although sometimes it did. But uh, certainly you, you notice a big difference now with the amount of coverage it's gotten in the last three weeks has been more on television than the last you know, eight years combined, probably. Well, the the number of, uh, of of U.S. soldiers who were killed in the in the in the ISIS strike thirteen was the largest loss of life, you know, in since what two thousand eleven. So that's right. That's ten exactly. years. So there's a reason it was getting. <laughs> there were many reasons it was getting all this attention. So let me ask you this: as you point out, the invasion of Afghanistan, which started in October of two thousand one, was very quickly successful in getting rid of the Taliban, forcing bin Laden to flee to Tora Bora, and a new Afghan government came in. When was the right time to get out? You know, that's a really good question. Again, it's easy to discuss in hindsight. I think, you know, if they had had the foresight to bring the Taliban into the political system, you know, we could have gotten out or at least reduced the chances for an insurgency whether it was late 2001, certainly 2004 when Karzai is elected, those were the best opportunities and that the Taliban was weak. They would have been most uh, enticed into the political system if we'd had the foresight to do that. Uh, certainly when Obama commit, you know, approved the surge of 100,000 US troops, militarily we had the upper hand for a while and there were elements in US government, both in the State Department and some in the Defense Department who wanted to press harder than to negotiate with the Taliban. But, you know, it would have been tough at that point. I think the Taliban was just waiting the Americans out. But there were opportunities then when you, the Americans had more leverage. The other opportunity- Didn't, didn't we been, have a, a bounty of uh, on, on Mullah Omar? I mean, he was a wanted guy. We were trying to get him. He was the head of the Taliban. How could we have formed a government with a guy who we were trying to kill? Well, that's, you know, you, this is the thing. All throughout that time, the Taliban was trying to get their names off the terrorism blacklist that the United Nations was putting out. And this was leverage we had over them. We could have removed the bounties, taken them off the blacklist and said, OK, you guys are allowed to be part of the political system. But frankly, we had lumped the Taliban in with Al Qaeda and demonized them all as terrorists. You know, we politically just weren't willing to take that step. Um, the other opportunities, frankly, we had to leave, you know, as Biden points out, after bin Laden was killed, there really wasn't as much of a reason to stay in Afghanistan from a terrorism perspective, you know, to prevent another 9-11. And, you know, to be honest, you know, Obama tried, right? He started withdrawing troops under the surge and tried to scaling back. But, you know, in by December 2014, Obama says he's bringing the war to a conclusion, right? He says... That's the end of the combat mission seven years ago. But then he got cold feet about pulling all troops out because they were worried the Afghan government might collapse, that the Afghan army wasn't strong enough. But in retrospect, they would have been better off doing this seven years ago because at that point, the Afghan army was certainly stronger than it was this year and the Taliban was weaker. So even if we would have ended up with the same result, you know, I think seven years ago was better than this year. 
But politically, I will point out, let us remember the Taliban did give safe haven to al-Qaeda, even though they were not al-Qaeda. They refused to turn him over when after 9-11. And, you know, so for the American public, the distinction between uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda was, was, was not as clear as you've articulated it. No, of course. But again, we never really tried to make that distinction. You know, from early on, we lumped them all together. But this really gets back to who are we fighting this whole time, right? Why was the, this is something you see again and again in the Afghanistan papers from diplomats and generals saying, we went in there to fight al-Qaeda, right? But within six months, al-Qaeda was out of Afghanistan, either been killed, captured, or, or fled. So for the next 19 years, we're fighting the Taliban and other insurgents. Well, the Taliban didn't commit the 9-11 attacks. There were no Afghans involved. Yes, they gave refuge to bin Laden and, and, and al-Qaeda for a number of years, but that why were we having a war against the Taliban, against the Afghans for 19 years? Well, what was that, what was that, fa- that famous, uh, well, now famous snowflake from Rumsfeld? Uh, I have no visibility into who the bad guys are. Right. And this is two years into the war. Right. And he's writing his own intelligence officials saying, I know invisibility and who the bad guys and we would always distinguish. We call them bad guys and good guys. Right. This is how the Americans would see things. And yet. So the Taliban were bad guys. Al Qaeda were bad guys. But our troops on the ground would ask. We'd see these interviews in the Afghanistan papers where they'd say, look, a special forces advisor would say, the troops would always come up to me as soon as they got into Afghanistan and say, show us the bad guys. Where are the bad guys so we can go fight them? And the guy, the advisor would just laugh. He's like, you know, they don't wear uniforms. And how do you distinguish between, uh, you know, a real insurgent who's trying to kill Americans or some, you know, narcotic smuggler or a warlord? Well, that, you or, know, Craig, that does bring up one of my favorite nuggets from the book, which is the interview with this guy, Michael Matrinko, a foreign service officer who you know, knew the region, spoke Farsi, had spent a lot of time there. And he talks uh, in, in one of these interviews, much of what we call Taliban activity was really tribal or it was a rival rivalry, or it was old feuding. I had this explained to me over and over again by tribal elders, you know, the old men who would come in with their long white beards and would sit and talk for an hour or two. They would laugh about some of the things that were happening. What they always said was, you American soldiers don't understand this, but you know what they think is a Taliban act is really a feud going back more than 100 years in that particular family. He's right. And we never figured that out. And the other feuds we get involved in is we, we lump them in good guys and bad guys. But a lot of our allies were bad guys. Right. These warlords from the Northern Alliance, some of them were, you know, were accused war criminals and legitimately so. And a lot of our allies, the so-called good guys in the Afghan government were really corrupt. And this was a real problem with the Afghan people because they would see the United States siding with not good guys, they saw, you know, they didn't like the Taliban, but they really didn't like some of these warlords from the Northern Alliance or the local power brokers. So if, if you're if you're trying to win the allegiance and support of the Afghan people, uh, this was flawed from the beginning because they didn't see their own government as legitimate. They saw the United States siding with some bad guys against other bad guys. And in the end, the Taliban was gaining strength. And frankly, there was a, a religious advantage they had. The Taliban would always say, we're fighting the foreign infidels. 
And most Afghans, you know, that, that's a hard argument to argue against. Let's just take a step back even more. We've, you know, you've documented how the American public was misled all these years, how little progress we had made. On the other hand, after we pull out, if there is, in fact, a bloodbath of Afghans who worked for us and helped us out, uh, and if, in fact, as some counterterrorism experts are saying, we do see al-Qaeda uh, resurgent in uh, Afghanistan. We do see them using that territory to plot attacks against the United States. And we already are seeing jihadis celebrating this Taliban victory. Would that suggest that maybe all those presidents who didn't want to pull out earlier may have had good reason to do what they did? I think that's, you're right. They didn't want to pull out out of that fear, that political fear, that they didn't want to keep fighting the war. They saw it as a loser conflict that we had been dragged into that they couldn't win. But they were so afraid that if there ever was another attack against the United States that could be traced back to Afghanistan, they would be seen and blamed as you know, allowing another September 11th. So that fear, that political fear no question is not just in the back of the minds of Bush, Obama, and Trump, but in, in the forefront of their minds. Nobody wants to get blamed for another 911. And you know, Biden's really taking a risk in that regard. Could there be another, you know, spectacular, so-called spectacular attack against a US target that could get traced back to Afghanistan? It's going to look really bad. Um, on the other hand, we've sort of been fighting this war the same way that isn't working. You know, the former Defense Secretary Bob Gates always had a, an observation. He says, you know, in, in the United States, we always, we're always fighting the war, the old war. We're not looking ahead to the new threats. And to be honest, Al-Qaeda moved on after 2001, 2002. They left Afghanistan. They reconstituted themselves in other countries like Pakistan and Yemen and Syria and Iraq and North Africa. And that's been the threat that most counterterrorism officials are worried about coming from places like that or, or from Europe or from cells coming into the United States. You know, 9-11 was conceived in Afghanistan by bin Laden, but the planning for it was carried out in Hamburg and within the United States. So this idea that we, we have to fight all our terrorism battles in Afghanistan to me seems, seems kind of backward, right? And it, you could even argue that our presence there for 20 years has created more of a backlash uh, among Afghans, among other jihadis, that you know, our presence there as the foreign occupiers has made things worse. So we're still fighting the war the same way with drones, with the military in this faraway land, but maybe we just need a whole new way of thinking when it comes to counterterrorism uh, to prevent another 9-11. Well, wise words on the eve of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and something for us all to think about. Craig, I want to uh, thank you for joining us and um, thank you for doing this book. It's uh, really illuminating and it will be an important part of the history of our war in Afghanistan. So thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with all three of you guys. 